After George Washington's Christmas surprise at the Battle of Trenton, the Americans were feeling pretty good about themselves. They wanted more. Washington decided it was time to cross the Delaware River again and take Trenton and New Jersey for good. Happy New Year, friends. My name is Matt Gore, and welcome to Episode 3 of the History Revolution Podcast. Now, before we get started, make sure you go to thehistoryrevolution.com slash Princeton for your free podcast companion packet. Now, let's get started. George Washington boldly crossed the Delaware River on a freezing cold Christmas night in 1776. The next morning, Washington's Continental Army routed 1,400 Hessian soldiers who were stationed in Trenton, New Jersey. Washington knew that he could not hold Trenton at that time because the majority of his troops had been unsuccessful crossing the river that Christmas night. So he gathered much-needed supplies and retreated back across the river before British and Hessian reinforcements arrived. The victory at Trenton on December 26, 1776, gave the Americans momentum and set the stage for the events that would take place over the next 10 days. George Washington wanted to drive the British further away from the continental capital of Philadelphia and establish his winter headquarters in New Jersey. He sent an advanced force across the Delaware River led by Nathaniel Green. Washington, along with 2,000 troops, joined Green in Trenton on December 30, 1776. General Washington knew the great value of information. He always wanted to know as much about his enemy's movements and positions as possible. He ordered militia colonel John Cadwallader to obtain accurate intelligence at any cost on the British forces in the area. That priceless information would prove pivotal in Washington's preparation and planning. Through spies, bribes, and patriotic citizens, he learned that British General Charles Cornwallis had amassed as many as 8,000 troops in nearby Princeton. A hand-drawn map by Cadwallader of British troop positions and defenses in Princeton gave Washington the intelligence upper hand. Washington knew that he would be under attack in Trenton soon and that he needed to bolster his numbers in order to stand a chance. The problem was that many of the local militia enlistments were running up. He pleaded with the militiamen to stay on. Luckily enough, the money that the militiamen needed to continue on arrived just in time to commit to staying. He now had probably around 7,000 men. Washington and his army began taking a defensive position along Assenpink Creek and building earthworks. He also positioned 1,000 of his men on the road between Princeton and Trenton to delay Cornwallis's approach into Trenton, and that's just what they did. On January 2nd, 1777, Cornwallis began his march to Trenton with 5,500 men. He left around 1,400 men in Princeton under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Charles Malhut, Washington's outer defensive troops harassed Cornwallis with multiple skirmishes and turned what should have been a three-hour march into an all-day march. This gave Washington more time to prepare his defenses, and by the time Cornwallis actually reached Trenton, he was already running out of daylight. Cornwallis's combination of British and Hessian troops hastily made several assaults late in the day, but they were all unsuccessful. 
The Hessians attempted first to rush the narrow stone bridge across the Assunpink Creek, but were turned back every time by the Virginia Brigade along with Continental Artillery. The Virginia Brigade was reportedly ordered to shoot their enemies in the legs, which would force their fellow soldiers to pull them to safety or leave them for dead. The bodies began to pile up, and the bridge soon became a killing ground. According to one American soldier, the bridge looked red as blood with their killed and wounded and their red coats. When nightfall came, Cornwallis knew that he had Washington on the ropes and that he would be able to overwhelm him the next day. Some of Cornwallis's officers believed that they needed to continue the attack, but they were overruled. Cornwallis sent troops to defend the Delaware River and keep Washington from escaping. Washington was seemingly trapped. One of General George Washington's favorite tactics was tricking his enemy into thinking he was somewhere he wasn't and moving his troops under the cover of darkness. He loved to use the element of surprise. After nightfall, Washington convened a council of war with his senior officers. They were in a precarious position that they didn't believe that they could hold much longer. They devised a daring plan, a plan not only to escape, but also to attack the enemy. Again, they used intelligence to their advantage. They were alerted to the fact that the British had failed to guard a road to Princeton that was actually unknown to the British. Washington ordered a small number of his men to keep the campfires burning and to make noise, creating the illusion that they were still there. Meanwhile, the rest of his army began a midnight march toward Princeton. In order to hide their movements, it was a silent march with no torches. They even wrapped their wagon wheels with heavy cloth in order to muffle the sound. The Battle of Princeton was a battle that almost didn't take place, well, at least not uh, with any historical significance. Cornwallis had ordered Lieutenant Colonel Charles Malhood to leave Princeton and march toward Trenton to provide him with reinforcements. Malhood was marching south on the post road while Washington was marching north on a lesser traveled road cutting through farmland. They almost missed each other. However, Washington's march was a little behind schedule, and he sent a detachment under the command of General Hugh Mercer to seize and destroy the Stony Brook Bridge along the post road. It's debatable as to who saw who first, but at this point, Mercer and Mawhood are aware of each other and preparing to engage. At this point, the British held the numerical advantage and initially routed the Americans with a bayonet charge. Mercer himself was surrounded, yet he refused to lay down his arms and surrender. He was run through with bayonets several times, and because of the way he was dressed compared to the other soldiers, the tenacious way in which he fought, and his refusal to surrender, many of the British soldiers believed that they had actually killed General George Washington himself. The success of the battle hung in the balance. In fact, all the momentum gained crossing the Delaware and defeating the Hessians on December 26 was at risk of being lost. Washington knew that he could not lose this battle. Colonel John Cadwallader and his militia were sent to reinforce Mercer's initial force. The Americans now held the numerical advantage, but the British forces were far more experienced and still maintained the advantage on the field. Upon seeing this, Washington himself rode into battle, leading fresh troops. Washington rode to within 30 yards of the British lines. 
One of Washington's officers, John Fitzgerald, reportedly covered his eyes, fully expecting Washington to be killed. Washington appearing at the front with his men reinvigorated them. The Americans were able to break the British lines, and Mulhood's men were in shambles. Meanwhile, General John Sullivan was marching towards the town of Princeton. There was a small garrison of British troops that had remained in Princeton, and while some had retreated, around 200 hunkered down to hold off the Americans. They hoped that they would be able to hold the town until reinforcements arrived. The final stages of the battle took place in what is now Princeton University. American artillery captain Alexander Hamilton positioned cannons around the building where the troops were stationed and began firing. Allegedly, a portrait inside the building of King George II was decapitated by an American artillery shell. Once the shelling started, the British garrison soon surrendered, and to this day you can still see the damage to the surface of the building. There was a lot at stake for Washington over these 10 crucial days. The victory at Princeton, following the victory at Trenton, was huge for Washington and the Continental Army. Princeton was Washington's first victory over British regulars on the battlefield. Morale amongst the Continental Army is through the roof as they made their true winter camp in Morristown, New Jersey. Morale wasn't the only thing gained, though. Washington's boldness at Trenton and Princeton paid off by forcing British General William Howe, the commander-in-chief of British land forces, to pull all of his units that had been spread throughout the New Jersey countryside back into New York. There's a lot of discrepancy among historians and records concerning casualty numbers, but it's fair to say that British losses far outnumbered those of the Americans. Another positive of the British forces moving back to New York is that it put more breathing room between the British Army and the American capital in Philadelphia. If Washington would have lost these battles and his army, there would have been nothing between Cornwallis and Philadelphia. A devastating loss at either Trenton or Princeton would have most certainly ended the revolution. Thank you again for watching and listening to Episode 3 of the History Revolution Podcast. Remember, go to thehistoryrevolution.com slash Princeton for your free podcast companion packet. Happy New Year, and I pray that we have a great 2024 together learning about American history.